Uh, it's been a long time since I've been here uh, to preach God's word, but it's always a privilege to stand and declare what God is doing, what God has done, and what God hopefully will do through your lives as a congregation and the lives here involved with First Baptist PB. So uh, I do want to thank you for your time today. It is a measure of grace that you are here, and we are so glad to be here as a family uh, with you in sharing this day and what God is doing already. Uh, thank you so much for the worship. It was spirit-led and full of uh, the gospel, and so I'm very grateful to have been led in that direction. Um, I do uh, send a hello and a big hug from Daniel Cecil. Uh, they're having a good time in the United States. Uh, they're resting, um, spending some good time with family they haven't seen in a long time. And, of course, uh, they're nearing their time when they'll be back next week, and so they say they're very anxious to get back and get back to what God is doing here with you all. Uh, I want to turn your attention towards the book of Acts today in Acts chapter 8. Verse 26 through 40 is where we will spend the majority of our time today in this specific text. In Acts uh, chapter 8, uh, 26 through 40, verses 26 through 40. Atos 8, 26 a 40. So for those who may not have gotten that. I do want to say once again as well that we're so gra- glad to be here in the city of Curitiba. Um, we arrived here almost a couple of years ago, and we've been blessed every day to be here to spend our lives with you for the gospel. So in Acts chapter 8, verse 26 through 40, let's go ahead and read. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he arose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot. And he was reading aloud the prophet Isaiah. And the Spirit said to Philip, Go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, Do you understand what you are reading? And he said, How can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the Scripture that he was reading, the eunuch was reading, was this. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about Someone else. Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch. And he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, 
and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and as he passed through the he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Father, I do want to thank you for this moment we have to listen to you from your word. All of scripture speaks about Jesus, your son, what he was going to do, what he did, and what we can just worship in, Father, knowing that all has been complete in Christ. But now, Father, we want to know how can we take this message and apply it to our own lives, but more than that, take it and help others understand its message so they too can be transformed by the gospel. So open our eyes and ears right now. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, I was reading a, a few blogs um, for the, to begin the new year uh, for 2013, but before 2013 hit, I was reading uh, an interesting blog um, it's called O Tempora Omores. It's by three guys, um, uh, pastors, three pastors, Mario Meister, uh, Solano Portela, and Augustus Nicodemus. I call these guys the heavy hitters because they all came together and are writing about scripture, about theology, but how it applies to all of life and our culture today from ethics to uh, film to what's going on in the lives of churches, but more importantly, uh, something that we all kind of come around to at the end of the year, which is our New Year's resolutions. And we all like to make them, I want to lose more weight, or I want to do better in how I play this instrument, or I want to spend more time with my family, or I want to make more uh, money in this way, or I want to get a better job. You know, everyone's got a New, resol new Year's resolution. And what happens every year? Uh, it's usually the guys, uh, you know, in their 30s, they're saying, I'm going to hit the gym and uh, I'm going to get big. And usually it's about 80% wee protein, you know, a little bit more creatine side versus actually pumping weight. But anyways, and then the, the third day of the year hits and we're still in bed. You know, we're hitting the alarm clock because we don't really want to do that. But we, we all have our New Year's resolutions that we really want to, do better in our lives than we want to make. Uh, but here's something that Solano Portela, that he, that he comments on, that he makes uh, a lot of observations about how this year's will look a lot like last year in many ways. And here's what he has to say. He says this, and it's in Portuguese, so I didn't translate, so I have to forgive me. It's, a corrupção vai continuar. This is the first thing. A segunda. Os preços vão aumentar. A third thing. A vida vai permanecer difícil com tribulações, enfermidades, injustiças. A fourth thing. A violência não vai dar muito treuga. A fifth thing. Os engarrafamentos vão piorar. And a sixth thing. Os vendedores de felicidade aqui e agora... O engano do evangelho, da prosperidade vai permanecer. But here's a bigger thing, and you can find this on his blog. It's this. No, no entanto, no meio das perturbações e confusões deste mundo, em 2013, a graça de Deus continuará a ser manifestada até que ele compra os seus propósitos in sua creação. And he ends with that last one because he does believe and I believe that the grace of God is going to continue to transform and save lives 
in spite of the same things that challenge us every year. Now here in this text of Acts 8, you would think in the early church that Philip was uh, encountering different problems. They weren't as bad as what we've got today. And I, I want to tell you, friends, the same problems and the same sin that existed with Philip exist today. New challenges. New opportunities. But most of all, we all are experiencing the same sin. The same issues that we all have to face every day in our own lives. Personally, corporately, but in our world today. So nothing new, what Solano was saying, nothing new that's going to happen this year didn't happen last year. Unfortunately, we're going to see sin manifested in many dark ways. You think what happened in the United States in, uh, in Connecticut, the shooting, that things like that happened 2,000 years ago. But it wasn't with guns, par se, but massacres. Sin manifested in many ways is going to happen this year. But what we can stand upon and what we can know to be true is the hope that we have in Jesus Christ and the grace that transforms all of that and redeems all of that for his glory. And that's what Philip is bringing here to the Ethiopian eunuch. But before we talk more about this text, let's back up because what we really need to understand is the background behind Philip's ministry. But the central truth today that we need to walk away from, if you don't hear anything else, hear this. The central truth of this text and what we need to be reminded of is that the messenger of the gospel, meaning if you are saved in Christ, if you stand and you're identified in Jesus, you are a messenger of the gospel. You are empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that will bring life-transforming joy by its power. So I'll say that again. You as a messenger of the gospel are empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ that will bring life-transforming joy by its own power. Not by your power, not by my power, but by the Holy Spirit's power, God's power through the gospel. And so what we want to focus on right now in this text is in verse 26 through 29, as you saw in chapter 8. In verse 26 through 29, we see the messenger who's sent to proclaim the message. But as I said, let's go back a little bit before we get to this occasion where Philip is sent by the angel to the chariot of the Ethiopian eunuch. You remember Philip and Stephen are two of the most well-known of the seven originally in Acts chapter 6 uh, in the early church. They were chosen because there was a ethnic schism that was separating... Uh, Hebrew-speaking Jews from Greek-speaking Jews, Hellenists. And so there was an issue at hand because there was about 8,000 people. There's only so many apostles that can distribute bread or money, per se. And they've got a problem on their hands. They don't have enough leadership to help distribute all the monies that would need to help with serving the poor. And the apostles recognized that. In Acts chapter 6, you'll find this. And they say, we've got a problem, church. I want you to select seven men of good repute of character who understand the gospel and its implications. But more than that, they can take the gospel message through their own lives and they can lead others in serving. And there were seven chosen, but two of them, particularly Stephen and Philip, were chosen, I believe, by God's grand design, perfect design, because both of the men had a strategic role for the future of the church. 
And what would that look like? Because up until chapter 7, what we find is the church and the ministry of the apostles centrally located in Jerusalem. But what we find is in chapter 7 where Stephen is declaring God's word, boldly proclaiming the truth, he's taking the gospel to whom? Hellenistic speaking individuals, but the Lord is using Stephen's life and his death to bridge the gospel from the Jews to the Gentiles. And Stephen and Philip would play a major role in that. Because in Acts chapter 8, what we find is Saul, who had been breathing threats and uh, murder upon the church, approved of the execution of Stephen. And in Acts chapter 8, we find the church scatters. Because in Acts chapter 1-8, Jesus says to the apostles, you will be my witnesses to Jerusalem, to Judea, and then to the ends of the earth. And what happens in Acts chapter 8-1, what we find is, we find the confirmation of this promise by Jesus in his own mouth. Because a great persecution arose in Acts 8-1, and the people and the disciples were dispersed to Judea and to Samaria and to other parts. See, God's grand design through suffering, through murder, through tribulation and distress was being confirmed right here. And to this day, it's still being confirmed. But that's the joy of God's sovereign working hand in bringing grace to whom? The Samaritan people. Because then Philip, whom we find in Acts chapter 8 right here, he is sent by the Holy Spirit's direction because he is one of those dispersed who leaves Jerusalem and finds his way to Samaria. Now, if you remember in Luke chapter 10, 51, you'll find that James and John particularly were not keen on liking the Samaritan people. And James and John are walking with Jesus and they can't get through Samaritan, the Samaria. And the reason is because there's such a great schism because Jews speaking Jews, Hebrew Jews did not mess with Samaritans because the Samaritans didn't believe in anything beyond the writings of Moses. The Samaritans did not hold to the temple. There's a such great schism that they created their own temple on another mountain. And so James and John are wondering, why are we not welcome into this town? And Jesus says, let's just keep on going because that's how God's mind works through his son. And James and John say, let's just call us fire and thunder down upon them, Jesus. Would you like us to do that? As if they had the power to do that. And Jesus says, no, let's just keep walking. Why? I believe because Jesus knew that James and John, or one of them, would go back to Samaria to take the gospel instead of fire and thunder coming down on these individuals. And what happens? Philip proclaims the gospel in Samaria. There's joy being brought. Simon the magician believes, but really doesn't. But then what we find is, Peter and John are sent from the church of Jerusalem, and they come down, and they pray that the Holy Spirit might be received. And we see one of them, Peter and John. John, the same one who said, I want fire and thunder to come down on these people because they won't receive you, Jesus. And Jesus is saying, the gospel goes beyond your blood. It goes to the nations. And see here we have confirmed here that Peter and John, they take the Holy Spirit's empowered message to these people and they continue to preach the gospel to the villages of the Samaritans. Now that's providence, folks. 
That's God's good, sovereign design. And here we come, Philip. He's got a message. So Philip's made his way from Jerusalem to Samaria. And now the angel's saying, yeah, you know that dusty, dirty road, that hard mountain you just climbed up. I'm going to need you to come all the way back down to back to Jerusalem. Also where persecution's happening. And then I want you to take that 60-mile road, about 100, um, about 100 kilometers, all the way from Jerusalem, all the way to Gaza. And it's dusty and it's dirty, but I want you to do it. And Philip says, yes, I'll do it. So here's the messenger right here, sent to proclaim the message of the gospel. This is a spirit-led course. This is something that Philip just doesn't choose to do on his own leaning or his own will. He's constantly praying that God would give him a heart of wisdom and discernment. And what we see here is Philip having a spirit-led ministry. Friend, do you take in directions from the Lord like a servant? Or are you prone to just run ahead and make a path for yourself? Are you a servant when it comes to spirit lead me right now in these directions? Now, I think sometimes what we call, what Francis Chan calls the forgotten God, and what he means by that is we sort of take the Holy Spirit and relegate it to the side for everyday decisions when we need to be asking ourselves, Holy Spirit, just guide us right now. We need to, we need to have discernment how to spend our money. We need discernment on how to live as witnesses amongst our neighbors. Holy Spirit, guide our, our decisions on what we watch on television. Guide us in what we do right now in our conversation. Guide us in how we treat others. It's a spirit-led course that requires, requires us continually praying in the Spirit. And I think that's a characteristic of Philip that he possessed. And along the way, there's a eunuch. And so we see here, what's the purpose because in verse 27, he arose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace. So this person, this individual, more than likely, was it someone who guarded the treasury of the queen mother that ruled in that land. And we're talking about an individual who had significant influence financially and status. And this eunuch is found to be reading aloud because what we find here in verse 29, verse 28, and he was returning, as with, and was returning, this, this eunuch, seated in his chariot, and he was reading aloud the prophet Isaiah. I mean, that's providence too, that this man is reading the prophet Isaiah, and Philip just happens to be walking alongside this, this chariot. But more importantly, what we see here is that this individual had to have been on a religious pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Because getting a copy of the Old Testament, uh, it wasn't easy. It had to have been very difficult for non-Jews. So we can know for sure that this eunuch was reading aloud an acquired copy of God's Word, of the Old Testament. But what we see here is the providential act as Philip is told to walk closer to the chariot where he would hear the message, the message of the messianic coming of Christ being read clearly to the extent that the eunuch would be able to hear the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Philip's interpretation of this important uh, official is received with notable humility and grace, I believe, though. And here what we see in 30 and 31 is we see Philip running to him and listening to the Holy Spirit's direction for more of what he would need to do. 
So we here we see the messenger who sent to proclaim the message, but then we see the necessity of human preaching and explanation of the message. So there's a constant theme of the messenger and the message and the mission. The messenger, if, if you're in Christ, that would be us. The message, the gospel, that's transformed the messenger. And the mission, the mission of God. It's continually weaved throughout Genesis to Revelation. The mission of God did not begin in Acts. The mission of God began in the garden. When God slain an animal and put skins on Adam and Eve, the mission of God of redemption would flow through the Old Testament and into the New, into the climatic point of Jesus Christ. And it doesn't go down from there. The story just continues to go up in exaltation and worship to God. So we see here the necessity of human preaching and explanation of the message. So here, Philip runs to him, and hears him reading Isaiah, and he says, do you understand what you're reading? How many of you have heard somebody just reading Scripture, or maybe quoting Scripture? Because I know here in this culture, it's very common to say, gracias a Dios, thanks to God. Do people understand even what they're saying when they say thanks to God? Do they know why they're thanking God? Do they really, really, really know those things? Or there's cultural nominal words, that's all it is. We need to challenge those around us who we know don't believe in Jesus Christ. When there's an opportunity for a spiritual conversation, to be spirit-led and to just move that conversation towards, do you know the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power that's in it? Do you know why you've been saved? Do you know that it's not just for ABC, admit, believe, and confess, but it's for A through Z? all of life, and utilizing that opportunity to declare the message of the gospel. But the thing here is that this someone, this eunuch, was needing to understand more than the Old Testament, what the Old Testament pointed to. And the passage used is from Isaiah 53, 7-8. But the thing about this passage that was providentially read aloud, because back then in those days, when you read something, you usually read aloud. It was just a way of how you personally read. So if you're one of those types like me that I cannot be around that kind of person who reads aloud because you want to be able to concentrate on what you're reading, that's what they did, and you were used to it. But in our culture, we just don't do that. So in our time, I mean. But back then, you you read aloud. You read audibly. You read so people probably close to the door could probably hear you, you what you're saying. And this providential act, this timing was by God. And Philip takes little time explaining who the prophet Isaiah was referring to in the book. It's about Jesus. Every verse and passage of the Bible speaks about Jesus. Either of what he will do, is doing, or has done. All the Bible is about God and his mission. And all of it, it swings on Jesus Christ. And that's why Christmas that we just celebrated, the season, is not just about the birth of Christ. It's about the birth of Christ because God become one of us to be near us so that he could save us. That's pretty profound and amazing is that God would move into another culture, into our culture, become one of us so he could be near us so that he could save us. And as we tell our, our, our girls, or at least our oldest, when we're talking about, you know, family devotions don't last very long. They last about maximum two minutes. We got about their attention for two minutes. But I think our oldest finally, by the end of 30 days, finally was able to say this. Why did Jesus, why was Jesus born? And she'll say, uh, Jesus was born so that he could die on the cross for our sins. That's it. 
It's simple, but it's profound. And the gospel just didn't begin with Jesus coming. The gospel was consummated. It was being fulfilled. But the Jews didn't get it. But finally, through the resurrection, some did. And we find here one man named Philip who got it, who went to another culture, who's talking to an Ethiopian eunuch, who's saying, let me come beside you, be near you, so I can tell you about the one who wants to save you. You know, Philip explained the gospel beginning with Isaiah, and this couldn't have taken two minutes. He must have been there for at least an hour, two hours, three hours maybe, just explaining the gospel as the chariot moved along. I mean, that would have been an amazing conversation to be a part of. But what we see here is that the faithfulness and necessity of preaching and teaching the gospel. I think many questions abound about the necessity of the messenger. Is the messenger of the gospel really necessary? And here what we have are a couple questions. What really is the importance of the messenger? Can God or is God saving individuals by his spirit without the messenger? How is God using dreams and visions in the Arab-speaking world, especially in the Islamic community? Where does the messenger fit in these types of scenarios, these situations? Is it necessary for someone to preach the gospel in order for them to be saved? Can someone come to know the gospel without someone preaching to them? And that was something I pondered in looking at this text because you hear the questions. Do you understand what you're reading, the messenger's asking, and then the one who's responding says, how can I unless someone guides me? Well, I believe all of Scripture, all of Scripture is God-breathed and perfect and gives us answers for everything. I believe when you look at Romans 10, 14 through 16, you hear this. How then will they call on him who have they not believed and how are they believe in, in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. And that's not meaning the individual who goes to Saudi Arabia or goes to uh, Nepal. This is talking about the guy who goes across the street. How beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel, who herald the message of the Savior, who are excited about what God has done. There's a what I would call gospel exclusivism. And what that means is, that's a big word because if you're from public school like me, you'll hear exclusivism. What does that mean? Exclusivism means there's no other gospel. It's exclusivistic. It's unique. It's the only way. And hear what John Piper says, which I think is very good for us to process through this, is the necessity of the messenger. He says, are there devout people in religions other than Christianity who humbly rely on the grace of a God whom they know only through nature or non-Christian religious experience? The answer of the New Testament is a clear and earnest no. Rather, the message throughout is that with the coming of Christ, a major change has occurred in redemptive history. Saving faith was once focused on the mercy of God, known as redemptive acts among the people of Israel, and in the system of animal sacrifices. But now the focus of faith has narrowed down to one man, Jesus Christ, the fulfillment and guarantee of all redemption and all sacrifices and prophecies. 
So what he's basically saying is that the content of the faith in the Old Testament, the Old Testament was special revelation. It was still God-ordained. But the progress of revelation, and since the cross, the gospel is the central and content of our faith. All that wraps up in Jesus Christ. And that's it. So how will they call on Him whom they have not believed? And how will they believe in Him who have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how do they preach unless they are sent? As is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. Jesus said, uh, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Call out for more laborers. Why is he saying, why is Jesus even? Because he wants the message of the gospel to go from human to human until every tribe and nation has heard the message of the gospel. Do we know which tribes, which nations, uh, which sects, which peoples, which races? I have no idea. In God's plan, he knows the full number. We don't. What we do know is we've got a command. Preach the gospel. Now, there's a, there's a quote. It's, uh, preach the gospel and if use words, and use words if necessary. Uh, I want to comment for one brief second on that. One is, you, you cannot preach the gospel unless you use words. So let's not take that out of context. You have to use words. You have to use words like faith. Like you were, you are dead in your sins and transgressions. Without hope and without God, but once without mercy, now with mercy with Jesus. Jesus died on the cross. You have to use those words because those words all speak about the gospel. And when you use those words, we're speaking Bible and the Bible is the gospel. So we must remember, we must use words in our preaching. And we must use the words that Jesus used about himself. A third thing happens here is that there's a baptismal confession of true conversion by the message. In verse 36 to 38, what we see here is, And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized. So why did Philip grant him permission to be baptized? And was there some sort of criteria? Because here, at least in this church and other churches that are well respected in regards to doctrine and practice, the issue is we need to make sure, we need to guarantee that the individual before we baptize them, they truly understand what the gospel is. And I think that's very important. But here we have a case here in Acts where he received Jesus and then he's baptized. So should we do the same thing? Now here's what I want to point out and make clear. What is not explicit here in, what is explicit here in scripture? What is explicit is not implicit. Meaning, just because it says that and, and, and it's being done here in this narrative does not mean we do the same thing always. Now, there are scriptures. It says, Ephesians 6.1, Obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. I think that's pretty clear. There's a <laughs> pretty clear directive right there. But when we're talking about in stone uh, the wife who's committed adultery, we just don't do stone anymore because all wrapped up in Jesus wrapped in Christ doesn't mean there's no consequences it just means that the Bible just because it's explicit doesn't mean it's implicit and this is one of those texts that we have to dig deeper and so when we dig deeper we wonder at least in the English Standard Version it leaves out this confession and so I had to do a little more digging and when you do it you hear this in the New American Standard and Philip says in verse 37 if you believe with all your heart you may and he answered I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and then he's baptized 
In the King James you hear, and Philip said, If thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Some manuscripts of the Western text leave out this verse, and I believe it's very important that it's not because ESV is perfect. This translation is that God's Word is perfect, and we need to go to other sources and pull it all together. In verse 37, it clearly has the confession, Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Now, what's the great confession? We hear Peter talking to Jesus. So, are you the promised one? Are you the one? And Jesus said, what do they say about me? Some say Elijah, some say Moses. And, P- and Jesus says to Peter, well, who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And what is Jesus' response? You're right in saying that I am Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. And you're Peter, and on this rock, <clears throat> I will build my church. And so we see that that is the great confession is that when an individual comes to know the gospel in their life, and when they begin to really wrap their mind around what the gospel is, they will confess, Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. That's it. That's what hinges on every single faith. What is the litmus test in all claims to know God? Is Jesus Christ. Islam will deny it. Jehovah's Witnesses will devalue Mormons will devalue. Even in traditional Catholic, will deny that Jesus, the sufficiency of Jesus Christ and His work on the cross. Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God. And that's what we're going for. Folks, in our discipleship, Jesus must be supreme in everything we say and do. So how about you? Maybe there's someone in here who's who really would say, Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, I believe it. But you've never confirmed to the local church the great confession, Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, and have true community accountability, maybe in a cell group, maybe publicly, just to say, Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, and I publicly confess this so that you, all brothers and sisters, will walk with me and help me know that more. And that's important. Well, we finally come to verse 39 through 40. And here it says the, about the missional results of the message. And here's what we find. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And in the Greek, it would be literally snatched Philip away. Now, I, there's two instances that I think in the Gospel, at least one in the Gospel and one in Acts, that I would love to be a part of. One is where Jesus' hometown, he goes and preaches the Gospel, and they all want to throw him after, over the cliff after he proclaims that I'm the Son of the living God. And he kind of just walks through their midst. And it's just awesome just to think about. And then here in this part right here, the Spirit snatches Philip, the messenger, away from the waters from the Ethiopian eunuch, and he's gone. And what happens? The Ethiopian eunuch, he sees him no more, but he goes on his way rejoicing. And he takes the gospel back down to Ethiopia. And Philip finds himself at Azotus, which is a old Philistine city, and as he passes through, he preaches the gospel to all the towns, leading all the way up to Caesarea. So we're finding the movement of the Spirit continuing through the book of Acts. The main actor, the Holy Spirit, taking individuals, common folk, impacting those with more influence, helping carry the movement of the gospel to other people. 
And the significance of the eunuch going on his way in joy only confirms earlier in Acts 8 where the people in Samaria, they were understanding the gospel, they were being healed by the gospel, and finally receiving joy because there was much joy in that city. That's a litmus test for yourself if you're in Christ. Do you have a lot of joy in your life? Are you filled with joy? Do people see, ah, that's like someone I want to be around. It's contagious because they're pursuing Jesus. And they just seem like they have a lot of joy. That should be something that you've you've got in your heart, just a lot of joy and happiness in following Christ and doing what he's called you to do. But here Philip, he's got a lot of joy. And he's continually taking it and using his life because it says he stops... In Caesarea, because in Acts 21.8, what we find is Philip's married. He's got four unmarried daughters, and they're all prophets in in the local church. But he's still carrying the message of the gospel. And he's letting that joy infect others. And Paul meets Philip finally. And they're past cross. And they're encouraging one another. And the gospel's transforming. So what we see here is the necessity of the messenger who comes and is being sent to proclaim the message of the gospel, the necessity of of human preaching, Philip preaching, teaching, speaking the words of the gospel, the reason why we need to call out more people from amongst here and other places here in Kirchi, other churches, to go and take the gospel to where the gospel needs to be preached and lived, and the necessity of human preaching in the message, and how that transforms everything, but more importantly, what we need is to return even to a more fundamental thing, which is baptism. Understanding that its place is not a routine or something we just do, but it's something that we use by God's means to confirm the faith of others, to bring in a unified body in the local church, and then seeing the missional results of the message, which is joy. That's all that God desires for us to have, is much joy whether in suffering, in pain, or with little or a lot, God wants us to have joy in Christ. So I think there's some gospel reasons for change here in this in this text. Uh, the first one is that I believe that all believers, if you're a believer in Christ, as I said before, are sent as messengers to declare the message daily by the Holy Spirit's leading. Uh, a second thing is that through the power of the Holy Spirit, the messenger is empowered to explain and preach the gospel. We're called to live the gospel, of course. I always tell people, you know, about three months or so, three or four months after meeting somebody new, you should be getting that relationship to a point where you can finally say, have you heard the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Have I ever told you about that? Can we sit down and do that? I'd love to share with you about that. You should be shooting for a smaller time frame than three or four years. You should be shooting for a good time frame for you to sit down and preach the gospel and share it. I think that baptism, a third thing, confirms the Holy Spirit's work through public gospel confession. Uh, there's a there's a Indian pastor over in India. He says that if you're not willing to be publicly baptized... This is in northern India. If you're not willing to be public, publicly baptized in front of all the town, in front of everybody you know, then we have strong doubts that you are a sincere Christian. Because a public baptism over in India would prove death. All of us, to figuratively say it, we're all on death row. We're all waiting in our death. 
one out of one persons will die. I don't know how many people are in here, but every single one of us will die. We'll die a physical death. We will die. And we need to all be aware that our death, if you're in Christ, must count for His glory. And the results of preaching the gospel message bring joy to the messenger and to those who hear the gospel. And that's our aim and that's our focus. That's what gives us the drive and intention of ministering to one another, planting churches, and being sent out to do so. And so that's that's our joy and encouragement that we receive from Acts 8 today, is that Philip was a messenger sent with a message on God's mission for his glory. Maybe there's somebody in here today who has never confessed Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. And you would say that you've had individuals come into your life not by accident, because there are no accidents in God's plan. God's always working and weaving through His grace opportunities for you to know Him, but yet at the same time make Him known. Perhaps there's somebody in here who does not know Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. And you would say, someone came to me, maybe it was a week ago, maybe it was three months ago, maybe it was a year ago, and you've come in here and you're thinking, there's no accident why this guy not wearing a suit on a Sunday morning, is teaching the Bible and preaching the gospel the same message that the other guy or other lady said. And he's only confirming by the Spirit's work right now what God's doing in your heart. And God wants to save you. I want to say to you, flee to Christ. Call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ right now. Say, save me from my sins. Make me new. I confess that Jesus Christ is the Son of the living God, your Son, whom you sent to die in my place, who rose from the grave, who holds the keys to victory, victory over death and sin in this life, and who holds a greater promise for me to the promises of God that were fulfilled all through the Bible. If that's you, call upon the name of the Lord. Flee to Jesus. Flee to Christ. Ask God to transform your life. Ask the Spirit of God to open your heart to understand the Gospel. Ask the God to bring someone in here to you right now who would share the Gospel message and explain it even further if that's where God has you. God desires to use you as a messenger to take the message of the Gospel to the farthest places of the earth. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for just the message of the gospel, its power and work. We thank you for all that you are doing, Father, the lives of believers here and through those who may not know you as Lord and Savior. I'm not so naive to think that everyone in here is saved who has confessed Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God, not by verbally saying it, by actually living it, like they believe it. And I just pray, God, that you would just work. I confess, Lord, that as a sinner still relying upon your grace, that you would continually transform me and my life, making me more like you. I know that there's so many areas in my life, Lord, that I need work, Father, by your Spirit. As David says in Psalm 51, creating us a clean heart and renew a steadfast spirit within me, Father. Renew a steadfast spirit within me.
we might trust in Jesus Christ, the Son who lives. And I pray that each person here would know that. Lord, something that was uh, spoken of last night in a conversation with some friends, but more importantly, something you've been challenging me to pray towards and pray for is, Lord, we're all corrupt in heart. We like to say in our, the Brazilian culture that so many that we think are entrusted with so much of our money are so corrupt. Well, Father, we must start with ourselves before we can pray for them. So, Lord, we're so corrupt in heart. We've corrupted our view of of sex. We've corrupted our view of what we consume, what we watch, what we say. And, Lord, we are so corrupt in our own hearts, God. We need you to heal our hearts. We need you to forgive us of our sins and transgressions and move us forward as we confess Jesus Christ as the Son of the living God. Help us to know the power that exists within Jesus Christ and what He's done for us on the cross. Help us to remember the Gospel. It's not the ABCs of Christianity. It is the A through Zs. It should affect everything we do in all of our life. So as we move in this time of, of worship, Father, through the Lord's Supper, I pray that, God, you would use this time and this, this act of worship for your glory.